few weeks ago, we at Medusa received confirmation that Russia's federal censor is now requiring internet service providers inside Russia to block access to Medusa's website. We and a handful of other outlets are accused of disseminating information in violation of the law. This attack on the free press is happening because the Kremlin has something to hide, because it has more in store. Put simply, we have been banned for reporting information from sources other than the Russian state itself, particularly when it comes to the invasion of Ukraine, which the censor has made it unlawful to call either an invasion or a war. But Russia is at war with Ukraine. This war is an unprovoked act of aggression by the Russian state against the people of Ukraine. Medusa rejects any attempt to limit our freedom to report the truth about this conflict or any other subject. The Russian authorities can try to stop the public from seeing our journalism, but they will fail. We have prepared for this. Medusa has a mobile app, we have an enormous audience on social media, and we distribute newsletters over email. Our readers will also still be able to reach us using VPNs. There's one challenge for which we were not prepared, however. 90% of the donations we received before the war came through payment systems that are now inaccessible inside Russia. So now we're relying especially on you, our international audience, to help sustain our work. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. It's about Vladimir's life or his wife, Olga, because it's the most romantic story I've encountered in, <laughs> in, um, in years of my reporting. Practically every Ukrainian I've, I've met had a story of a distant or not so distant Russian relative, uh, like a relative living in Russia, who doesn't understand at all what's what's going on here. Some people see you as the aggressor. Did you encounter hostility? Uh, well, yeah, but you know, just on Twitter. I'm Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition, and welcome back to another episode of The Naked Pravda. For today's show, I sat down with Medusa special correspondent Lilia Yaparova, who's been reporting from Ukraine on the Russian invasion for the past several weeks. Just a few days ago, she published a new article based on her visit to Chernihiv, which fell back under Russian siege just after she returned to Kiev. The story is now available at Medusa, translated into English, titled Mom, Please Make It Stop. Medusa special correspondent Lida Yeparova was in Chernihiv in the final days before Russian troops cut it off from the outside world. Here's what she saw. Before I get to the interview with Lilia, I want to make a disclosure to listeners, repeating some of the things that you're going to hear me point out during the conversation. The things Lilia saw in Chernihiv, modern-day trench warfare, families devastated, divided, murdered by missiles, bombs, and gunfire, people hiding underground in the dark for more than a month. This is all extremely far outside my own experiences in life. So there's a certain detachment 
in how I approach the subject. And it's, I think I just lack the powers of experience or empathy to overcome that. It stands out in some of my questions to Lilia and her better grasp of the human element here, of the fact that this is life, not just words on a page. I think that comes across. So that's just my way of saying that I'm very grateful to Lilia for her journalism and her contributions to this podcast and this episode, this particular episode of the show. Her work has me thinking a lot about the people in Chernihiv and in Ukraine's other besieged and war-torn cities. And now here's the interview. I thought it would start, actually, I'd start with some questions that are not related directly to the war reporting that you've done, because that's, a, that's heavy stuff. And if we start there, then if I try to go anywhere else, it's going to look like I'm making light of things. So let's start, the thing I wanted to start with was Medusa and several other independent media outlets recently had a chance to interview Zelensky. And I know that one of the criticisms I saw was that it was all men talking to a man and that we didn't get any women. And Medusa actually has, you know, this wonderful correspondent working now in Ukraine. That's you. And I was wondering if you had had a chance to interview Zelensky, are there questions that you would have asked that were not asked? Is there anything? I mean, maybe you would have asked the exact same questions, but there's another question you'd like to ask. Like, what are some of the things that you would like to what are some questions you would like to put to Zelensky that were not raised in that interview? You, know, you, you ask difficult questions because I haven't even read the interview. Uh, so <laughs> Okay, well then that's, that's perfect then. So what would you ask him if you could sit down with him? We'll find out. That's not my feminist rage or anything. <laughs> I just, I just uh, haven't had time because I was working. Sure, and, sure. Uh, yeah, but uh, as, as for me, um, I, I don't feel uh, threatened by not being invited to this meeting i mean uh yeah yeah it just uh, a bunch of editors uh, interviewed uh, ukrainian president it's it's great that a bunch of russian speaking russian editors were able to ask some uh direct questions and uh, get some right. honest as i've heard because i haven't read the two yet sure answers i i think that that's great and i think there is some female perspective on things when uh, definitely there is some um, female perspective and, and, and things when we talk about war in general and war in Ukraine. But as for now, I think uh, things are moving fast. And no, it, it's enough. It's enough that some Russian guys had access. I, I don't think that was uh, like a scheme to right. not include any female journalists, female authors in this uh, a whole whole mess about this uh, interview. Sure, so. sure. But what would what would you ask him if you could get him in the hot seat? If you could speak to him, what are some of the questions that you think you would you might want to ask Zelensky? I don't really have any women related questions. No? Uh, I've never. <laughs> okay. I, I don't. I I don't consider myself to be a. I'm not a woman at war. I mean, I, I'm just a reporter. Okay. I don't feel any different here. And the main question for me, actually, it's not about Ukraine, it's about Russia. It's about what the future holds for us as a nation. I mean, but that's not the question I, mm -hmm. Zelensky would have an answer to. I mean, uh, yeah. I, I know it's a bit selfish. Yeah, maybe it's totally selfish. Well, what would you ask? Put what would you ask Putin then? The, yeah, yeah, it sounds, sounds like, like questions for, for Putin. For, for, what, would you, what are some Putin? questions yeah, you would ask yeah. him? So, uh, so what's next? You, you old strange guy. What, what's next uh -huh. for us? Well, what you? What else do you have in stock? Uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, 
Any jokers, uh-huh. maybe? <laughs> don't, don't, don't. Uh, mm-hmm. I, 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 no, I okay. never want to know uh, if uh, Vladimir Putin has any jokers left. Any joker card he, he might uh, mm-hmm. have had at the moment. It's like it, it should be something really awful. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think nu- nuclear, but uh, yeah, re- really, really awful for everyone. In terms of going to Ukraine and doing this style of reporting, this is, is correct me if I'm wrong, is this the first time that you've done war reporting or have you done it in the Donbass before? Or When I was uh, working for TV Rain, independent channel now mm-hmm. temporarily closed because they were trying to cover this whole war mm-hmm. uh, special ops thing, honestly, and uh, repeatedly called. Yeah war war yeah uh in 2017 if i'm correct i traveled to to the donbass region and uh, basically just talked to people there and it was it was risky we were detained mm. once by basically local uh, special services totally controlled by the fsb of course mm-hmm. but still local some lnr local special services we were detained and we had to lie <laughs> our way out of the situation and we were successful at it and then uh, yeah we had another n- troubles uh, I see. in donetsk Dine- already uh some guys with uh mm-hmm. kalashnikovs came to our flat where we lived i wasn't at the flat at the moment i was already traveling with some local criminal okay he, he was driving driving me to some interesting place I never got there because uh, when uh, these people with Kalashnikovs came to our flat, uh, I, I recognized that this was the moment to leave <laughs> the Donbass region uh, for good. Yeah, right. because right. they were coming for, for for me, for us, for our team. Right. Yeah, so it, it was not exactly war reporting; it was just uh, Russian reporting. <laughs> I mean, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the thing that seemed so risky for me then. Uh, like five years ago, it seems like every day um, situation yeah. for practically every journalist staying in Russia still. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so you probably might call it my first time covering the war. Yeah. And how, like, I guess the, the, the things that, that cross my mind when reading your reporting from in the field is, I mean, to me at least, maybe it's different for you since you have had you have spent time in the Donbass. But like, and I was telling you this off mic before we started recording. But the whole like this entire experience, the experience certainly of the people that are on the ground that are dying, losing loved ones, being injured, giving birth in like basements and and bomb shelters and all these. It's just like these scenes of these horrific scenes, these things out of like what to me are like out of a bad a, a scary movie or something. You know, like something so remote from my personal experience that it's hard for me to understand that, you know, I know you and you're there seeing this and interacting with these people psychologically, like how, how does this work for, to, to go to a place like this? I mean, maybe this is a bit, I mean, obviously this is a little selfish 
on my part because I'm trying to relate to this and I'm asking you to do it for me. And that we're I'm we're not ta- I'm not talking to somebody who's in a bomb shelter right now. I'm talking to you who were th- who was there. So all that all those cards are on the table. But all the same, I'm just wondering what's the experience like going there. And you know you volunteer you volunteered. It's part of your job, but you volunteered to go into this place and witness what's become of these people's lives. And you know you you're able when you want to go outside of the war zone and return to you know a sort of normal life and so on. And so it's just it's all very it's a very strange thing for me to try to like wrap my head around. What is it like for you? On my second night um, in the bomb shelter in Chernihiv, I felt uh, like I was losing my mind. Uh, it was really scary because it, it, it's a very cold, dump, um, and uncomfortable place to sleep, of course. And I wasn't able to sleep properly at all while I was in, in Chernihiv. Mm-hmm. And some, night, some nights when I was in Kiev in bomb shelters. Uh, right. But this was something special because all these thoughts came to to me and uh, filled my mind completely. But they were very strange thoughts. You know, it was it was not my normal way of thinking about things, mm-hmm. and I fe- felt this change, mm-hmm. like as if I was uh, not, not going crazy, but going so desperate and so lonely and so changed that I would never be the same again. And I think that that was my second night. Then I remembered that there are people who were living inside the shelter for, for a month already, uh, almost a month. And uh, yeah, I, I think I, can imagine what it, what happens mm-hmm. uh, with with your uh, uh, cognitive structures, cognition when you live like that, right. and it's really, yeah, it's like a, yeah. um, some kind of dis- dissociation from not from reality. You're yeah. deeply in, it, you're engulfed <laughs> with, with reality. It's dissociation from your old self, from your. Yeah normal uh, normal way of interacting with things i'm i'm sorry I, i'm 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 rumbling maybe but yeah it, it it's it's really no it, no no I, I mean i don't think so it's a really strange really strange experience and uh, right. I, uh i can't quite explain it to myself yet basically when i'm not uh, losing my mind i'm just like i'm i'm numb i'm i'm like a robot who just needs to mm. Um, mm-hmm. I need to do my job properly. That that's all I'm thinking just yeah. about that, and that shields me from mm-hmm. from reality around me. Also, it massively helps that I'm I'm a guest here. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't call myself a tourist at war. I'm not a tourist. Uh, it's I I I, f- I feel for these people and mm-hmm. the story. Uh, the story of this war, it's also, it's, it's a story of my country going forward. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very personal to me too. I'm not a tourist here, but still I'm a guest. I mean, I was a guest in Chernihiv 
Mm-hmm. And now I, I'm in Kiev and I'm a guest here. Do some people see you as the aggressor? I know that that you know that, that there's been a lot of spillover in terms of the who is held responsible for this, and you know you encounter this. I mean, I encounter this on on social media a lot. Is that a lot of Ukrainians, a lot of people that support Ukraine, they don't necessarily draw a line between the Russian leadership and just Russian people in general, and maybe journalists are special and some and somehow, even if they're independent journalists, you know, they might be responsible for this or that offense against the people of Ukraine. Did you encounter hostility? Uh, well, yeah, but you know, just on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, uh, I've met, I've met, I've met dozens, dozens of uh, of, of people here in Ukraine, and yeah. everyone, like every single one, helped me yeah. greatly. Right. Yeah, in, in the ways I, 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 I didn't even think were possible. Yeah, like right. uh, really helped me. But when I started posting some of my <laughs> uh, articles on Twitter, yeah. Yeah, the situation shifted. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was really strange right. because it was uh, such a contrast, such a interesting. Yeah, it's it's really really yeah, it was really strange. But I, I no offense, guys. I mean, uh, really, I I'm not even angry. Yeah, it's people are threatening to, like, um, yeah, they they basically many of them threatened to eliminate me in some mm. some ways right. or at least deport me from the country I'm not even angry because I know that that's probably how how it feels for many people on social media I mean mm-hmm. they're angry they uh, they um they were hurt by by the Russian state and uh, if uh, they want me to suffer on Twitter I'm okay with that yeah. uh, that's uh, they're in their right, right. I mean I'm I am I'm accustomed to that. I mean, uh, that's not my first day on social media, and sure. uh, I know that many people have strong feelings. Yeah, and uh, I'm not angry at them at all, and I, I do understand them. Mm-hmm. I do understand them, and uh, they're in their right, right. to do that sure, to, sure. to me. <laughs> One of the things that stood out to me about your your recent report from Chernigiv is that so much of the city, I mean, so much of the infrastructure has obviously either collapsed and, or been destroyed, or it's just not working anymore, including even like the kind of basics of market economics, and that a lot of survival has now been reduced to barter economics, and people are literally just trading things, whatever they can get their hands on. Can you, I mean, can you explain, like, can you give a few, a few examples for listeners of just how much barter is now a part of life in this city? Uh, my favorite story is that of uh, Vladimir Rodov. Every morning he prepares breakfast for his wife and it's like five eggs and um, some just some vegetables. And to get those ingredients, he uh, needs to uh, make about 50 kilometers around Chernikov, around town, he need, needs to get uh, to his dacha in the country to get some stuff to cook this um, breakfast. And uh, he uh, needs to cross some fields w- where there are mines and it's really dangerous, but he goes there. Then he needs to 
insinuate himself into the community of people who make bread in the city. And uh, he tried to get them some drugs, some medicine they needed. And uh, he was successful and they started to give him bread. And now he uses that bread as like as leverage. He traded some uh, several loaves for some eggs to make breakfast for his wife. And it's, it's really, I mean, it's not about some <laughs> new market economy developing in Chernihiv. It's about people. It's about their love for each other. It's about their ability to help each other. It's about Vladimir's life or his wife, Olga. Because it's, it's the most romantic story I've encountered in, <laughs> in, um, in years of my reporting. I mean, it, Vladimir, what he's been doing for his wife and for the people around him, it's very touching because he's like, he's become suddenly in this month of war, he's become a pillar, pillar of this small community around him. He helps greatly all the people he's covered, uh, he's gathered under his roof. He, um, he's organized a bomb shelter in, uh, under the school mm -hmm. he, he was working for. And, um, mm -hmm. yeah, he, 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 he's a great guy and he, he knows that people need food and bread and water and medicine and he delivers, he delivers and he. He does what, what needs to be done and he stays human mm -hmm. throughout all it. So okay. yeah, he's great. There's, there's one bit where you're, you're citing someone named Mikhail. I'm like, I'm not, I don't remember what his surname is, but in the story, you... uh, there's, there's, uh, there were, there was no surname yet. Okay. Just gotcha. Mikhail, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he, in, in, in the story, he's, he's complaining that some people have, that a lot of people have left the city. And that, you know, or he, I don't know if it's a complaint, but he says only the patriots are left and um, you know, the patriots who love Ukraine down, down to their bones. But that the, the, the problem was with this is that now Putin will say, oh, it's just the Bandarites and the fascists that have remained. Can you explain for listeners what the nature of that comment is? And also how much, I mean, I would imagine that under the stress of war, there's, there's always going to be, you know, conflict within the different sides and so that you know there's 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 going to be among among ukrainian you know resistance fighters there's going to there are going to be you know rifts there's going to be disagreements about things most of your story is is you know a catalog of solidarity and and uh, unity and all this stuff and it seems to be that seems to be the main story certainly but what are some of the the disagreements within among ukrainians that you notice because this seems like one of them to me well first Mikhail showed himself um, to be a great political analyst because he, he's, he's right. He's right because uh, <laughs> both uh -huh. Putin and the Kremlin and our Russian Ministry of Defense, they, they are already using that point, that talking point about just Nazis staying mm. inside uh, cities right. um, encircled, yeah. encircled by, by the Russian army. So Mikhail is right uh, in some in parts. Also, he's, he's deeply hurt and he's full of pain. And it, it was evident just when I, looked, when I looked at him, it was immediately, I immediately understood that he's full of pain. 
he's very energetic with uh, you know this kind of um, bad energy you know uh, like chaotic nervous he's not energetic because he's full of full of life he's energetic because he's full of pain and he needs some somehow to hide it uh, and um, yes his wife got hurt she was wounded and um, he was living in this bomb shelter I was sleeping in with his young daughter just 13 years years old and uh, you can imagine it's it, it's horrible it's like the worst that could happen to you in your lifetime and mm -hmm. he was experiencing it for right. 30 days straight so yeah he's full of pain and uh, for sure he's in, uh, he, he's mentioned some things that I've heard before. I've heard from people in Chernihiv that Kiev has it better, that Kiev is okay just due to Chernihiv's sacrifice. Uh. No. Uh, but while uh, Russian forces were going uh, from Belarus to Kiev, the outskirts of Kiev, uh, they never got to Kiev exactly. They crossed through Chernihiv, yeah, mm -hmm. and Chernihiv tried to defend both itself and Kiev and suffered for it yes, greatly. And um, I see people in Chernihiv they feel like, uh, well, somehow. They've sacrificed themselves for Kiev and for the rest of Ukraine and uh, suffered probably more than some other towns and uh, Ukrainian cities. And uh, of course, it's it just it, it just pain talking. It's I don't think uh, this anger. I think the anger will will be short lived. It just it's it just their pain talking for them. Right in this moment when I met them, I don't think that there is some huge picture behind these words. In terms of the general mood that you're witnessing in these cities, in Kiev, in Chernihiv, how long do you think this bad blood is going to last? I mean, like the Russian invasion has obviously, you know, turned Ukrainians away from Russia in a way that, that in a big way. <laughs> and I've seen kind of speculation that it'll be, you know, generations before there can be friendship again, or it'll never be, happen again. I mean, you're there, you're, you, you've said that people have actually been quite accommodating and, and friendly to you, despite the fact that, you know, you're, you're Russian. Do you get the sense that Ukrainians perceive this war as, as the folly of like this small group of Russian leaders? Or are they, are they kind of, have they turned against Russians everywhere? Um, because, I mean, the, the thing that's hard to, to rationalize here is that, yes, there are brave independent journalists like you. There are, there are brave protesters in Russia who turn out to protest even though they could be sent to prison. You know, these are all intensely brave people. I think if, like, if you pulled out your phone and showed a video to these people in bomb shelters, they would, they would likely be glad to know that somebody's out there doing this, these, this stuff. But the, I mean, there's no revolution in Russia, and the, at least to, I don't know how accurate they are. But like even the polling by the Levada Center shows that Putin's support has only gone up, and there doesn't seem to be a mass movement against the war, despite everything. 
how how are Ukrainians, you know, internalizing those apparent facts? Like what's what what what's what comes next in this kind of like relationship between these two peoples, these brotherly peoples as Putin likes to call them? You know, despite me receiving help at every turn, I don't think that will work as a general rule for for the mass of Russian citizens. I had a purpose coming to Ukraine and I presented myself as um, an independent journalist trying to tell the truth to the Russian people. And it's a very specific position to put yourself in. And uh, it gave me some advantage. When I've practically every Ukrainian I, I've met had a story of a distant or not so distant Russian relative uh, like a relative living in Russia who doesn't understand at all what's what's going on here. I mean, I've met girls in uh, while I was was spending nights in uh, a bomb shelter in uh, Kiev's metro. I've encountered this girl who, who ju just outright told me that yeah I, i'm never talking to my relatives in russia again because uh, i've showed them some videos i've uh, i've texted them on whatsapp what about what's going on with me personally about uh, bombs raining on kiev and they don't believe me so i'm never talking to them again and i i've met some people in bomb shelters in chernihiv they were took out their smartphones and started reading, reading out like quotes from their conversations with their relatives from Russia. And it was all the same about some Western powers, powers from the West trying to confuse this brotherhood of nations between Russians and Ukrainians. And that's the first time in my life in my career when I've seen for myself that, well, we, we probably failed. I mean, we, uh, the remains of independent journalism in Russia, we, we failed dramatically because propaganda works and it works a lot better than I expected. And, uh, these people, these Russian relatives, yeah, I've mentioned, they won't be forgiven like ever. And I think that's the story of many and many and many households in Ukraine. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, you heard from Medusa special correspondent Lilia Parva about her journalism in Ukraine and her latest report from Chernihiv. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English language show. And I hope you recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. It helps put this program in front of more people. Also, if you value Medusa's reporting, whether in English or Russian, please consider making a donation at support.medusa.io to help sustain our work. Recurring pledges help the most, but we will take whatever you can spare, of course. Thanks for listening and come back soon.